The sermon this morning is from Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6 will be in verses 1 to 19 this morning, uh, about half of this proverb. And I just want to tell you, going forward, I'm actually not sure which Proverbs I'm going to do. Uh, I said I'm not, I'm not going to do all of them. Uh, and they get fairly repetitive. And, and the idea is, you think of a father putting together a daily devotional for his son. And saying, on the fifth of the month, I want you to read Proverbs chapter 5. On the sixth of the month, I want you to read Proverbs chapter 6 as part of his training. And so the, the repetition. Uh, so, so some of the things you'll read in the next few Proverbs, it, it seems as if it's just repeating. And it is. It's, it's in a sense the father saying, son, every day you've got to know this. <laughs> every day you've got to be reminded of this and reminded of this. Um, so I'm not sure how we'll finish up the, the Proverbs. I'll probably choose another six or seven. Um, or I might just take some topics and, and put the Proverbs together. The topics this morning are in most of the other Proverbs as well. So our context, of course, is a father uh, giving to his son what is right and what is true and, and fatherly advice from himself, from his own history, and from all of those around him. In our context, uh, chapter 4, we dealt with the son who, um, at the end of his life, in the middle of destruction, he, he confesses, I hated discipline, I despise correction, I failed to listen to all of my teachers. In chapter 4, 23, he says, son, uh, guard your heart. It's the spring of life. We started with Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord, beginning of wisdom, fools despise wisdom. And last week... We talked about the seductive woman. This week, uh, it's as if the the focus has shifted, son, from the seductive woman that will drag you down to the types of people you hang out with. And any of you who've had children, that's always been a concern, isn't it? I I would talk to my boys at times when they go out with their buddies. And I know I always say boys. I I, I did talk to the girl, uh, but she was just better. (laughs) Uh, I always say talk to the boys but it was true I would just I would look at the boys and I'm like oh who are you with well look at the boys I'm like son are you an influencer and not like on social media (laughs) are you an influencer of those around you or are you influenced by those around you truth being they're both you know, you, you are going to be influenced by those around you. Um, but uh, that, that's kind of what you're getting here. So he's going to list what, what uh, are kind of, here, here's who I don't want you to become. Uh, and here's who I, I'm concerned if you hang out with. So I titled The Seven Habits of Highly Defective People. Uh, Stephen Covey wrote a book, The Seven Habits of Highly uh, Successful People. It was part of one of my training when I was a salesman, when I was a boss, um, was very helpful to me. Uh, habits, the idea that habits create a, a different person, uh, almost like drills uh, for a sports team. Drills develop just a reflex, a response without thinking. Um, and so when, this, when, when the father closes this section and lists these seven things, it's kind of a summary of the type of character. So... Um, and if you've had kids, there were, there were times when I would sit with my children and we'd see something or we'd watch something on TV 
and I, and I would stop and I would point out the behavior. And I would say, you see, you see how this person is behaving? Do you see what they're holding true? Do you see the outcome of what they have loved and they've held on to? Um, I felt like all the time I was always training, always teaching. Uh, we had the beautiful opportunity of watching Grove football on Friday. And if you ever get a chance, sit in front of Bo Byers. They're, they're not here this morning, so I can talk about them. Uh, Bo Byers is constantly parenting. It's just great. Just you sit there, it's constantly parenting, constantly coaching. You know, I, I mean, just always, always, always. And he just looked at me, he goes, does it ever stop? I'm like, no, it only gets harder. And it gets more important once they get older and they're out of the house. There is that sense that a father is going to look at his child and always be, oh, don't do this. Uh, and, and sometimes a father, a mother, sometimes we, we wonder, how much affirmation should I put on? Will they stop trying? Will they stop growing? Will they stop maturing? When do I tell them it's enough? How do I get them to know that I love them? And even though I'm pointing things out and I'm correcting it, it's because I love them. It's because this is what I want them to be. That's exactly the mind of the father here as he addresses his son. So that's been common to us as we've gone through Proverbs, this direct address, my son. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Proverbs 6, 1 to 19, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly in a moment. He will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among the brothers. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Maybe the greatest lesson I would want to teach my, my son is who are you bent on pleasing who amongst all of creation are you most concerned about pleasing 
Because who or what has that place in your heart, son, in your heart, daughter, absolutely controls who or what you become. And so when we get to the end of this text, and he lists, you just see him sitting and saying, son, the most important audience that you have in the world is God. We started by saying that the, 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 the way to wisdom is giving God every bit of value. Fearing Him above all other things, above all of your friends, above your coaches, above your parents, above your bosses, above what you even think of yourself. You put God ahead of that. And so when He comes to the end of those seven things, I mean, we look at them as Christian people and we say, these are the things my Father hates. He hates these things. Therefore, the love He has poured out upon me, the best way of me responding, the best way of me living, is looking at these things and saying, Father, don't just, just forgive me for those things. Make them less and less evident in my life. Make me to hate those things. Make me to be fearful of those things. And so it's a progress uh, of regression uh, that, that Solomon is giving his son. So um, we start really uh, with the, the surety, um, and then we go to the sluggard, and then we go really to the, the, the worthless person or the insurrectionist. So um, basically he's saying the, these, these are the people that I don't want you to become. Um, I've warned you against going even near to the seductive woman in the previous text. Son, I'm warning you about becoming one of these people or being with these people. The sermon in the sentence this morning is the guidance of God. It not only helps us to prosper, but it protects us from becoming the types of people that he despises. In our small group, we've been reading the book Gentle and Lowly. And I, I think, unless they're lying to me, we've all really, uh, each chapter, we've all really drawn a lot out of that. Um, uh, this last week, uh, the writer talks about kind of how some of us treat God as a seesaw. He's either full of grace or full of wrath. He, he is either looking at us graciously, not as we deserve, or he is profoundly upset and angry with us because he sees our sin. And I love the way the writer put it. He said, it's not a seesaw. They both rise together. And it's a great way of looking at it. When our God points out our sin by saying, this is the person I've created you to be. This is what I desire you to be. When our God points out our sin, he is at the same moment saying, let me show you another level of my grace. Here is where you have failed. Here is another level where my grace comes to you. And so as a, as a loving father will point out, sometimes by example of other kids, Sometimes by books, sometimes by the son's own behavior, where he will point out failure and lack and want. He is in the same moment pointing out God's amazing grace. So the first one is what we call the surety or the guarantor. It is a person who promises on behalf of another person. Now, Proverbs talks about this all the way through. Uh, in fact, in chapter 27, 
Right towards the end, the, the son is told, um, if, if someone gives you their coat, because basically they're giving you their coat so they can afford something sinful, keep that coat. <laughs> Make sure it's worth it, because that type of person, they're not going to pay you back. So all along, the father is giving advice. And here he is saying, son, be careful. In fact, don't bind yourself to a person that you don't know, that you don't trust. Don't bind yourself to a person. As he says, if you put up your surety, and they list two different people, he says a stranger or a neighbor. Now, just let's get this straight. The Kuipers don't co-sign for anybody. Okay, we don't co-sign. So, sorry, uh, just that's off the table. I don't co-sign for my kids. I don't co-sign for my nieces and for my nephews. I don't co-sign. You know why? I'm not as smart as a banker. And if the banker says you ain't going to be good for the money, who am I to question their wisdom? It's more than that, but it is that. It's that sense, son, you're going to be given a tremendous amount of wealth, right? And so last week he was like, you're going to be given so much wealth that, that there will be those that will use all manner of ways to ensnare you. My son, if you have found yourself by your words or by your deeds or by signing your name, where you are a guarantor to another person, that you have made promises based upon another person. What does he say? Do everything you can to get out of it. Not illegally, not using the law somehow to undermine what your words have spoken, but going to the person is what he says. Go to them right away. Say, I have promised this. I signed my name for this. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have made that commitment. What do I need to do to make it right with you to have that commitment taken away? It's exactly what he's saying. My son, be careful. I would tell my boys this all the time. Again, probably my girl too. Be careful writing checks with your mouth that you can't cash. Be careful writing checks with your mouth that you will not be able to cash. Be careful making promises that you won't keep or you won't be able to keep. Even if you intend to keep them, be careful making a promise that requires someone else to act in some other way that's beyond your control. In Joshua 9, we read about the Gibeonites, the conquest of the land. God had given them specific instructions about the conquest of the land. In Joshua 9, these people come and they deceive Joshua. They tell him, make a covenant with us. We come from far away. Look at our bread. It was freshly baked. Look at our wineskins. They were brand new. The text tells us that they sampled, they looked, and they, and they were deceived. And they signed their name to a covenant. And they said, okay, we're not going to attack you. You're, you and us, we're, we're good. And then immediately something else happens, and they realize, wait a minute, they're just over there. <laughs> wait a minute, the, 
They're in land that we're supposed to take. Wait a minute, they have deceived us. And then you know what happens? Then they find themselves fighting their war. That exact same concept. We have made an agreement. We have put ourselves up as guarantors. Uh, for further reading, he talks about it in Proverbs eleven fifteen, Proverbs 17, verse 18, Proverbs 20, verse 16, Proverbs 22, verse 26, and as I mentioned earlier, alludes to it in Proverbs 27, 13. And so the father here makes this if-then statement. If you sign up for a neighbor, if you've been snared in your words, then urgently seek a way out. Not a dishonest way, not through deception and trickery. Plead with your neighbors, it says in verse 3. Verse 4, it's urgent that you do this. It says, don't even go to sleep. You know, today when you buy a car, oftentimes you get what's the uh, Audi 7-day test drive. Um, That's one thing maybe our government's done well, unless you're a car salesman, uh, (laughs) is allowed people. You know, the, 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 what do we call that, buyer's remorse? You know, you get in and you drive it home, and then all of a sudden you realize what you have just done, what you have just signed. And maybe you did it under duress. Maybe you had what I used to call chrome fever. Uh, I had chrome fever so often. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of places, I think, uh, I think CarMax, you've got 30 days, right, to go in and undo. And in that sense, the Father is saying, whatever you have done, Seek to get out from under it. He says, do this as, as, a, as a bird that's caught in a snare. Do it like a gazelle running from the hunter. We know that a gazelle will never run as fast as it does when it's being chased. It's got more to lose than even the one that is chasing it. The one that's chasing it may lose a meal. The gazelle will lose its life. Son, it's that important that you are so, so careful with whom you make covenants and agreements, with who you guarantee. What does that mean for us? Well, I think in the, in the easy sense, it means don't do it. <laughs> if you have, seek to get it undone. You know, a few years back, I had loaned money to various friends, and, and, it, and it, just, it just made things weird. I remember going and just saying, um, I release you. I don't have any more power over you. You don't have to worry about when you come see me and if you've got new clothes or a new car uh, that I'm going to be judging you because there's money that you owe me. We're done. You're good. You're free. And if you're in that position, take it upon yourself to free the debtor, if at all possible, to free them. Think about our Savior. Jesus himself is our guarantor. How beautiful that he is our surety. That his blood has committed us to himself. That he pledges himself for all of our failures, all our shortcomings, and in all that we lack. So he moves from the guarantor or the surety to yet another way to be bankrupt. I think, David, you were saying this, uh, but I know my dad used to do this to me on a Saturday morning. Hey, Mark! 
little sleep, little slumber. Yelling down, down the stairs in the basement. Little sleep, little slumber, little folding of the hands, son, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Seriously, Saturday mornings in the Dutch house, man, it's like, get up. Time's a-wasting, the day is half over, right? That's what a dad does. What's he saying? Son, money's going to come from work. <laughs> sleep in, take it easy, chill. Yeah, that's not going to get you what you want. It's not going to get you where you want to be. I mean, just, he gives two examples. One, there's this positive example, right, from nature. Remember how I say, all of creation, everything that God has done is for us to worship, adore, and know Him. And the Father says, look at the ant. There are special, there's lots of types of ants in that area. But He's talking about the specific ant that would actually store stuff up. You've probably seen ants do that. You ever seen an ant carrying something that's like, 12 times its body weight? And you're like, how hungry are you? Right? It's storing it away. You ever turn over a log and all of a sudden you find stuff? Man, I've turned over logs and I found like enough acorns to feed a million chipmunks. And I'm like, you little fat pudgy pig. Share those acorns everybody. Right? He's saying, look at that. What are they doing? It's intent in their nature. They don't rest. They store away. Take that example from nature, son. Don't be, the word we use is sluggard. Uh, don't be a bum. Don't be lazy. Son, don't hang around people that are lazy, that are bums. Now, you think about this again. The father is writing to a son who is going to inherit a kingdom. All right? And I've known parents that were extremely wealthy, and this was one of their greatest concerns. How will I pass on? I, I, I want my kids, my children, and my grandchildren, I want them to enjoy what I have earned. But I'm so concerned that if I give them money without learning how it, you get money, without having a good uh, work ethic, that I'm going to ruin them. You know why they think that? Because it happens all the time. That's why they think that. And we've seen it, and they've seen it. And he's saying that to his son. Son, you're going to need to work, maybe not just to pay your bills, but to keep you from becoming worthless. Then he gives a negative example. Right? A ne negative example. The little sleep, the little slumber, and poverty will come upon you. Poverty comes upon us without work. It happens when we sleep, when we nap, when we decide not to work. He said, it's like a robber. It will steal from you, not just your money, not just, I mean, and we, again, we've seen it. We've seen people, we've seen athletes that get these huge amounts of money and they don't know what to do with it. Um, and then two years later, three years later, they're bankrupt. They're doing some commercial uh, for something for the AARP, right? They've got to gotta go back. We didn't learn how to do it. We didn't know. We, we thought we could stop working. Um, so he goes from really the unwise, those who make themselves a surety, uh, to the borderline sinful, right? The sinful, the lazy, the, the slothful. But, but really what the heart of it is, is in verses 12 to 19. Verse 12, isn't that amazing? A worthless person. What a horrible thing to be called, huh? 
What a horrible thing to feel. Worthless. Uh, it, it's, it's pointed and it's pointed to his son. Son, you're, you are in danger of becoming a worthless person. Uh, when I read that, I think of the story of King Joram. You can read this in Second Chronicles 21. Uh, he took over and he was warned by the prophet Elijah time and time again. He took the authority that he had, he took the wealth he had, the position he had, and he, he led the people of God down a terrible path of idolatry. And uh, over and over again he was warned. Verse 18 of chapter 21, uh, the prophet tells him that you're going to suffer, and it says he was struck, his bowels were struck with an incurable disease, and yet he did not repent. He had that disease for two years. Why do you have that for two years? Giving him time to repent. Giving him time to turn. But what sticks out to me is after these two years of painful bowel problems, he dies, and in verse 20, at the end of verse 20, it says, he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tomb of the kings. What we see in 12 to 19 is really nothing less than satanic behavior. The father is saying, model your life after God Almighty. He is the one that is worth most to you. He is the one that you go to for all of your help because God's enemy, the devil, this is how his life is modeled. This is how he wants us to end up. And he lists these seven things. The first, he says, is haughty eyes. Eyes, I mean, and, and again, he uses the body here, this connection between body and spirit. and he, Haughty eyes, what does that mean? Uh, eyes that look down on others. Remember one of my friends in Mississippi, he was raised as a sharecropper. And, uh, and racism uh, against African-Americans was just bred into him. And he said, uh, I remember him telling me in his testimony, he goes, I, I was told that, that uh, he said, I felt, well, I felt like my, the family, we, we had to look down on them because the other rich white folks looked down on us. And so we, we, would, we, would, we would prop ourselves up by saying, at least we're not them. Um, and so a haughty eye, uh, we, even that term looks down on, right? That, that, that has this sense that I'm elevated, that I'm better. Um, son, uh, don't hang around with people that do that. And when you find yourself doing that, quickly repent. You see, the, the Christian, the gospel tells us that, that for us to look down on anyone else is just foolish. It's ridiculous. It's silly. We are a people who are defined by the death of God's own son. We are the people that there's only the only way we're worth anything is because of what Christ has done for us. Lying tongue, half-truths, rumors, insinuations. Again, isn't that the work of our evil one? Lying and twisting of the truth. Hands that shed innocent blood. Murderers, abortionists, those who misuse the government's power, the military power, for their own sinful ends. 
O son, remember that Abel's blood cried out to God. But for us in the gospel, remember Hebrews 12, Jesus' blood cries out even louder, even greater. Hearts that devise wicked plans. The inside is your, is your heart, son. That's the heart you're to guard. Uh, God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run to evil. The false witness and the sower of discord. Son, these seven things our God hates. These seven things he abhors are an abomination to him. Right? We know if we love a person, we find out what's important to them, and we do it. We find out what they hate, and we try to avoid it. Right? Saying these are the things, son, that will make you worthless, your life worthless. I put in conclusion that this points out the absolute necessity of a substitute. You see, our God hates discord even more than we do. He hates the haughty eyes. He hates the boasting. He hates the murderous. He hates the heart that's quick to plan and do evil. He hates sin more than we do. And our God promises that His kingdom and our new earth will be marked by shalom, will be marked by peace. So what do we do? Well, I think there's a couple things that we have to remember. First, as I said earlier, Jesus is our surety. Jesus has bound Himself to us. So when we find ourselves, and I, you know, I gave Justin that hard task. I'm like, use this text as, as, our, as our call to repentance. But that's exactly what we do. We, we hold ourselves up to how, how is this part of me? And maybe we'll see one part one day and another part another day or all of them in one day. But every time that happens, what do we do? We say, Jesus, you're my surety. I am bound to you and I trust in you. But we also repent. We take words with us, as Hosea says. Return to me, and he says, bring words with you. Return to me and, and confess with your mouth. Repent and return, and you'll be renewed. Jesus does a mediatorial work. You know what that means? Rather than Jesus sowing discord, he puts himself between us. It's beautiful. Satan does discord. He whispers in the ears of God's children. He whispers in our own ears, always continuously sowing division. Christian community is difficult because Satan hates it. He's, he's at war with community, and if he can breed discord, he feels as he is one, a blow against God Almighty. Jesus does mediatorial work. He points to himself all the time. This I have done for you. This I have given you. This is what you are in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the warnings. 
Sometimes we read this and we, and we kind of wish, I, I wish I would have heard this when I was younger. And sometimes when we say that, we are in some sense just denying our own sinfulness. It's not that we don't know, it's we don't have the power. We rely upon you, Holy Spirit, not just to show us, but to change us. Help us, Lord, to, to believe in our forgiveness and our reconciliation with you and to lead us in doing the same with others. Oh, help us, Lord. We ask that you would protect us. Lord, we don't really feel like the end of our life. We, we want to have uh, the newspapers print all that we have done, all that we have accomplished, but the thought that we would pass away without anybody mourning, without anybody feeling loss, is horrific. You have made us with purpose. Each believer that you have put your, your spirit in, Lord, we, we believe that you have put us on planet Earth and in this location, in this church, in this job, in this family. You have given us a purpose, agents of reconciliation, agents of mercy. Oh, help us, Father. Not so that we'll have this great big tombstone, but that you would receive glory. Help us to see that, that you have placed us as your agents as a beautiful fragrance of Christ. And our fathers, we take the bread and as we drink the cup, we thank you that Christ is our surety, that he is our guarantor, as your word said. He is a guarantor of a new covenant, a new covenant in his blood where he has promised to take our sins upon himself in exchange, he will give us his righteousness. What glorious thoughts these are, Father. We pray that we would celebrate them appropriately with great gratitude. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.